1: Welcome to High Theory. We're talking today to Amy Gaeta about drone life. Amy, would you mind introducing yourself?
0: Of course, thank you. My name is Amy Gaeta. I am a final year PhD candidate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm in the English and visual culture departments, and my specialties are going to be in feminist science and technology studies, contemporary US American transnational culture, Disability studies and feminist theory.
1: Thank you so much for coming to High Theory, maybe. What the heck is drone life?
0: So drone life is a concept that I developed um, while working on my dissertation. It's absolutely it's the title of my dissertation. I was trying to figure out this question about how is it that even socially conscious subjects such as ourselves, who are very aware of things like the ways we are surveilled and exploited through technology. Mm -hmm. How is it that we can be so self-conscious of this and still have these really intimate uh, relationships with technology? So I became kind of invested in thinking about every day, kind of the ordinary relationships we have with technology and describing them in this monotonous way. It just seems like mundane and ordinary. And I really became invested in thinking about how passive we are with our technologies. Yeah. Um, Right. Even if, you know, people that aren't aware, just that those kind of positive affects we have towards them is very interesting. So I developed Drone Life um, first just thinking about drone technology, but I've since kind of expanded it to really just think of it as a way to explain the contemporary subjectivity of, you know, the, we'll say like privileged subject under, you know, neoliberal capitalism. And so, you know, my project really is about drones, because I think they're a perfect model for this. And, you know, the etymology of drone, it really comes back to actually the very, very early precursors of what would then be Adam Smith's kind of foundational work of capitalist theory. And I became really interested in that of thinking about drone, you know, the the drone bee is where it comes from, which is a bee, it's like a kind of they're born And they're kind of designated as a drone bee and their entire life's purpose is to impregnate the queen and then they immediately die.
1: Right.
0: And I thought, what a wonderful metaphor for capitalism that these subjects are marked at birth to just give themselves, you know, give everything they have to, you know, give, you know, life or, you know, reproduction to another and then to just die. Right. Um, and especially interested to me in that was also the kind of the pain and the pleasure of that relationship and that's really where it kind of got back to be thinking about how is it that we love these things that exploit us my expertise and also my lived experience um, as a disabled person and in disabled disability studies and also in feminist theory
1: mm-hmm.
0: made me do something different in science and technology studies where It's always really just been kind of criticized, like, oh, those stupid humans don't understand how much they're being exploited. And they really always see passivity as a bad thing. But I'm trying to basically also think about drone life as a way to redeem passivity and also Mm -hmm. to redeem our kind of interdependency and vulnerability with technology. Right. Without forgetting that it's totally exploiting us, right? Because we yeah, know yeah. that. Everyone knows that. Yeah. So I've been exploring the other side of that to think about really kind of create a theory of passivity. Passivity is the kind of foundational state that allows things to happen at all. So saying like, it's actually not agency action. It's It's the passive environment that lets you act within it. So that is, you know, kind of one cornerstone of it. But especially anyone that knows me knows, like, I'm I very much against humans. Um, I'm very much against, like, the concept of the human as that kind of, you know, autonomous liberal agent right. of the Western world. Yeah. And what I've been seeing lately, you know, is the world is, like, thinking about one aspect of drone life is kind of this desiring structure in which that kind of liberal, autonomous, independent subject isn't the desired norm anymore. Mm. It isn't the norm that mm. I'm, that's come kind of one of my claims of saying, like, that actually isn't a sustainable way of thinking. And that's really not how we're living now. If we do consider our relationships with technology, how dependent we are on them, you know, the relations that we have with them, the positive affects, and also that kind of element of passivity and this is really where I started thinking about the relationships that, that disabled people have with prosthetics and how those prosthetics, you know, they have these really, you know, intimate attachments to them. I always say it's like, you know, if you go up and push somebody's wheelchair, that's like going up and just like pushing somebody's legs, like that becomes an integrated part of the self. So taking that to think about the relationships, for example, that people have cell phones, Or one of my favorite aspects, my favorite parts of my research was probably looking at the relationships that people have with the genre of drone pornography. Mm -hmm. Um, And also like uh, drone hobbyists who become very, very like romantically and also just like affectionately attached to their drones. And the way that they kind of treat them, not only um, as a means of like sensory support, like I can go see the world with this thing, um and take cool pictures, but really, the kind of psychological and emotional support that our technologies provide. And I began to, and I still do kind of think about this as um the majority of technologies we use, how much they just become emotional supports for us. like we're disassociating so we go on our phone. And thinking about that, you know, not as a bad thing necessarily, right? to numb ourselves out from the world. Or to disassociate from the world, but think about that as something that's really necessary. Like partial objectivity, you know, kind of is necessary because being a subject under neoliberal capitalism is exhausting and unsustainable. Right. So I'm just thinking, like, how do we? This is always my question. I was like, um, for pretty much everything, it's like horrible shit happens in the world, like the world is awful. And yet we're still surviving. And I'm always trying to figure out what mechanisms by which we survive. The other thing I, other kind of claim of, you know, thinking about drawn life as a concept is that we're also in a moment of post-privacy. And I usually think of privacy as kind of like, everyone thinks of it as like a basic human right. And I kind of disagree with that in thinking about the way that privacy has been a way, like it was an invention, creating the private sphere from the public sphere. And then using that to dictate gender norms, dictating who, you know, deserves to be in public, deserving, you know, what is taboo, what is, you know, proper expressions to be in society. And, you know, to give you an example of this, like, I I think one thing that's funny is the kind of memes you see online, or you see the videos on TikTok, and it's people talking to their cameras, to their webcams, um, like they're talking to the FBI agent that's assigned to talk to them. Right, And I think that's really funny because there's something really kind of like vulnerable and really kind of like, fuck you, I don't care about privacy. And that is a completely different type of subjectivity away from the kind of, you know, the liberal autonomous human subject. And I recognize my kind of privilege in saying this, you know, more and more, I do think that people are caring less about their privacy um, as a concept. But of course, privacy is still like, you know there are risks to that, of course. I think one foundational thing, you know, to really kind of mesh this concept of drone life is inspired by Eve Sedgwick's model of um, queerness, where she talks about queerness as a um, majority-minority experience, where she basically says, everybody's queer. We're all queer. That's a universal condition. But, you know, some people that kind of queerness is intense and sort of like dictates our lives. So still acknowledging like queer people and then queerness as a kind of condition.
1: That is so fascinating. And I have about a million questions. <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm gonna ask my, you know, traditional next question, but I'm gonna preface that question with two indices. One is, and this is something i'm pretty sure you get asked on a regular basis you know you said something like the world is horrible and yet yes. and we have found this new ways of forming these kind of reparative v- vulnerabilities in our relationship with mm-hmm. technology and i'm wondering based on that how in your work you deal with the militarization of drones and um, mm-hmm. you know the lethality of uh, of drones so that's one index and the other is when you say you know you're anti kind of the liberal concept of humanness and agency there's also there has been critique of i, I know that you haven't used the word post-human and that's it. probably you know deliberate you know i'm wondering what your thoughts are there because there have been critiques of post-humanism as being triumphalist in a way in you know moving mm. away from kind of harsh realities which need to be taken into account so yeah. you know with these two indices um, in mind, let me ask you my second question, which is, how do we use drone life?
0: So the primary thing I attempted to do with with this kind of concept here, I said to take um, that Eve Sedgwick model of queerness as a majority and minority, Uh and then create a version um, of that to think about disability. So to think about kind of disability, really to think about drone life as time in which ability is becoming less important, there's less value placed upon it because of our independent kind of vulnerable relationships with technology. So I've been trying to develop that kind of minority, majority model of disability and technology. So, of course, the classic example is like, and everyone asks, they're like, well, you know, how do you make sense then of people living in drone warfare zones? And this is where, you know, this kind of theory gets much less utopian um, of saying it is... Um, and this is kind of uh, playing off Jasbir Puar's right, work. Yeah. Looking overseas and looking at those war zones and the disability and the impairment, and you get the kind of that graphic, graphic images of violence. And I actually say that those images, you know, we need to pay attention to them. But if we just focus on them, those images of violence actually become a safety mechanism. They become a numbing agent. Right. So I've been thinking about drone warfare as really kind of a... Um, like I said, kind of like a numbing agent for the US public to not even ignore, but to kind of sustain Mm -hmm. within Mm -hmm. the, you know, endless war on terror. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the second part of your question. Um, So first, kind of like having that recognition of that um, majority minority experience and trying to understand how our affects are structured by ideas of what is like, I always say, I'm like, we have really normative ideas of what vulnerability is, of what violence is. And this is deeply inspired by Sadia Hartman's work. So, you know, taking those kind of um, normative ideas and really destructuring them and thinking about different temporalities and aesthetics of violence. And then this does kind of, once again, bring us back to this question of what are we becoming? What are we, what is this doing to us in many ways? You know, everyone says like, oh, isn't this just an argument of like post-humanism or just like another Version of cyborg theory. And it's really not. Like, my choice to retain the word human is very particular because I think that, you know, the idea of the human of humanity is a really necessary fiction. Mm -hmm. And I always say, like, mass amounts of dehumanization that happen every day on this planet and the way that, you know, we have kind of humans who are not recognized as human. So I'm like, we really can't be done with this concept of human until, like, we really, until like everyone gets a chance to be human, right? We've been stuck in only one way of what that means. Um, and I think Alexander Wahele makes a beautiful argument about this in his book, Habeas Viscus, about this. Because he's like, you have to remember that like people, like, um, you know, living in chattel slavery. They thought themselves human, but they had a completely different understanding of what it meant to be human. And that's why I'm always looking toward what are kind of queer or not necessarily women, because that gets kind of normative, but more like queer, non-binary, and um, disabled people's experiences and understandings of what it means to be human.
1: How will an understanding of drone life save the world?
0: One of the background texts that's not always cited in my project, but is really foundational, is um, kind of studies on neoliberal exhaustion and depression, especially thinking about Mark Fisher's capitalist realism. Mark Fisher makes this argument that basically, we are at a state now where people have become so depressed, so kind of hopeless at this understanding of capitalism as this totality, that we've lost the imaginative capacity to even think we can ever end it. So we're stuck in this state of realism of depression. And for Fisher, this is also talking about like real, the production of like actual mental illness. And a lot of scholars have written on this. It's like, you know, capitalism wants workers who are like just enough depressed that they can still work, but that they won't have the desire or the energy to revolt. I really am am bought by that argument Um, and bought by this idea that we really are kind of stuck in this hopelessness. But for me, I also, I once again, kind of look at people who, myself included, who are depressed, who still have this kind of desire, this energy to change things. Um, And once again, we see this denouncing of, you know, what I would identify as passivity. And this only kind of one idea of hoping or of change, which is human activity. And I'm like, well, do humans have to change the world? Right. Does it have to be us or will it be only us? So I think that drone life could be an interesting lens. Um, And this will be my second project, actually. But an interesting lens to rethink... what we understand as passive, what we understand as kind of complicity, and what we understand is just kind of like, totally hopeless, right? Like, once again, going back to like, you know, does it have to be that my phone is just kind of, Always listening to me and trying to sell me crap and exploiting me and making me some mindless idiot all the time. Mm. Doesn't have to be that. You know, it is this really emotional I mean important like emotional support device. It is a way that I access the world. It's a portal in which I can sense things differently. And, you know, we always talk about especially now in the kind of really dramatic, really just beginning of the climate crisis. We always kind of talk about like humans are so self-centered. They're so stuck in themselves. Like there's a lot of talk of like, you know, building multi-species relationships. And I agree with all that, but it kind of, it does upset me that, you know, we also don't think about human technology relationships is also something that needs to be cultivated. It's also something that's really important in rethinking the climate crisis of addressing it. So my hope is that kind of drone life can promote us to have these kind of critical self-reflections, rethink our relationships with technology without thinking that we can simply undo the the problematic and the exploitative parts of them, but also just thinking about kind of what they can open within us, but how they can change us.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Amy, so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about drone life. This was wonderful.
0: Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, having me. And thank you for listening to High Theory.
1: If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams
0: and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio.
1: You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.